This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato. Um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort, as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 511 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. 
So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 327 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the podcast Mark Bradley. Now, Mark has traveled the entire globe responding to some of the biggest disasters and attacks that we have had as a mental health first aid professional. So a very different dynamic, someone who's actually deployed to these incidents with the skill set to be able to minimize the mental trauma from some of these events. So before we get to that interview, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show leave feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly makes us more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then take this free library of incredible men and women and share these episodes. The more people we get these stories to, the more lives we potentially can save. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Mark Bradley. Enjoy. Mark, I want to start by saying thank you for reaching out um, on, I think it was LinkedIn that we first connected, and thank you for taking the time to speak today. No, no, it's a pleasure. I, I think when I bumped into you on LinkedIn and looked at what you're doing, I was thinking, no, this is this is actually really interesting. And I found some interesting stuff with the people you've spoken to, so I thought, I'll get in touch and we can have a conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and we're going to obviously explore this in, in depth, but... Most of the people in the mental health realm that I've had, if not all, are involved more in the kind of long-term, you know, acute slash chronic um, treatment and, you know, diagnostics yeah. of, you know, first responders and all the other people that, that we discuss on the show. But you have a very unique role because you are actually inserted into some of these pretty big events as well as training, you know, teams to deal with it prior to the event. So I'm very, very excited to kind of explore that with you. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy. You ask whatever you want, and uh, we'll see where it takes us. Brilliant. All right. Well, I like to start at the very beginning. So, firstly, geographically, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Well, you're finding me uh, in the south of France in a town called Carcassonne, uh, about an hour away from the Spanish border. And it's a beautiful, clear blue sky, 31 at the moment. But with my heritage of Irish and Scottish genes, myself and the son are great friends. So I'm hiding inside till it cools down a bit. <laughs> well, let's talk about why you're there. So what's the background of, of what took you to France and then why you stayed there? Uh, well, I, I come from a family, uh, it's a military family. And so I've traveled all over the world. So I've, I've always had... I wanting to explore and be in other places. And uh, my wife, Rachel, is exactly the same. I got fascinated by other people and how they live and cultures and, and immerse in ourselves. And about four, five years, I oh don't know, more, six, seven years ago now, we started seriously thinking about, right, okay, let's just go and live somewhere else. We've been in the UK for a while. Uh, we looked at New Zealand, <laughs> South Africa, uh, Spain, and France. And with family connections, we decided other places are too far away for my family to get to. 
and we loved France. We got married in France. Uh, we looked at somewhere else for a year, and a friend who lives in Carcassonne said, you really should come down here. Uh, we came down, and we looked at a house, and three days later put an offer in for the house, and on the same day found out that uh, Rachel was pregnant with our daughter. So you know, we we jumped in with both feet. And I, I mix my time between here and the UK, to be honest. So I'm still... My company's in the UK and I'm in the UK most of the time, but Rachel's fully settled in here with her work. Uh, so I bounced between the two. But uh, when when the lockdown came, we were actually on the way back to England and uh, made a decision to stay here instead. But yeah, so we stayed here, been here three odd years now and loving it. Brilliant. Yeah, my uh, my brother and mother moved to Portugal. My sister and father moved to France. I'm here in America. So there's only like... My well, my one brother was in Germany. He's gone back now to England. But yeah, we we did the same thing. It's funny people don't see like how much traveling British people do. But I think it's such a a great way of seeing the world and also kind of educating yourself on some of the fallacies that were sold about other countries if you don't travel. Oh yes, I'm, we'll probably get onto it. But I lived and worked in the states for uh, eighteen months. And uh, I remember coming back and people, from that point, people would say, oh, Americans. And I would just laugh and say, you have no idea. It's huge. <laughs> you know, from the Midwest to California to New York, all places. I said, they're all really different. I said, it's, you know, you've got to get over that and start to think exactly where they are, the context of their lives. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's always fascinating. Yeah. And I think the similarities, you know, I mean, you know, what what our image, I grew up in Bath, so we had a lot of American tourists in hindsight, probably from the Midwest and Northeast based on the the, the, mm-hmm. the volume of the voice. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, that was it. You figured that, uh, you know, all Americans were obese, wore floral shirts, had giant cameras slung around their necks and shouted to each other across shops, you know, and, and you know, clearly that's it's a minute amount of you know, the stereotypical tourist, you know, and then vice versa, like the image of the Brits and the Germans and the French. And when you start traveling, you're like, oh, they're just people, even, you know, Afghanistan and all these places where we might even be in conflict with some of them. They're just men and women that want to raise their children and, you know, put a roof over their head and spend a long, prosperous life. True, true. I mean, and, and that's one of the things I love when I travel around and also with the work I do is you meet people from all over. I was in Gaza last year for a week working. And there's these commonalities. There's these things that we are just the same. You know, we kind of laugh at the same things. We get on. Kindness always works no matter where you are. There's a smile. People get frustrated and angry. And so that's it. When I go and do training in places like Gaza, when I was in Afghanistan, working with locals, actually, it's the difficulty is trying to get the words translated. But actually, how people are as human beings is pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, it's, it's so good to hear that. I've had a lot of, you know, soldiers on the on the show, special operations, men and women. And, you know, they say the same thing. The people that they are, are fighting, obviously, are not so friendly. But, you know, when they're looking at the, the families around whatever battleground they're in, they're exactly the same as, as the, the family they left behind to go fight. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I'd agree, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. Right. Well, back to, to your your origin, as it were. Where were you born and what was your family dynamic? Okay, so I was born in Leeds, uh, in uh, the county of Yorkshire, 
uh, which I've got that strange Yorkshire thing of being very proud of that fact for some reason. Uh, but I moved uh, to Africa quite quickly, to Tanzania. My father, uh, ex-army, moved out uh, into accounts. My uncle, grandfather, everyone, all army, all uh, Scottish Seaforth Highlanders Regiment, now part of the Highland Regiment. Uh, so we'd always travelled around. So I was in Tanzania, then came back to Scotland to my grandparents, uh, back down to Leeds for a bit, then off to Nigeria with another job with my uh, dad and family. And then uh, it got to a stage where it was either go to boarding school, because I was that age, and the schools uh, where we were in Nigeria weren't really up to scratch for it. So the only places were places like South Africa, which my dad wouldn't send me to. So I came back to the UK, went to boarding school in the UK. Uh, eventually, my dad got another job in the Middle East. Uh, and my mum decided she'd come back with the family. So he went off to Saudi, working in Saudi, and my mum settled in Leeds again. And so, yeah, up to the age of about 18, I uh, I was brought up in Leeds. So a bit of, bit of moving around when I was younger. Yeah. Now, obviously, there'll be some some huge pros, but did you, finding yourself in the work that you're in now and, and what we discussed prior to recording, which was, you know, sometimes the people that were, were subjected to trauma become the healers, become the protectors in the world. Did you have any trauma you were exposed to when you were younger? You know, it's... And this is the strange thing. When I talk to other people about it, it's funny how some things become normalized. And I think because they became normalized to me, I didn't see it as traumatic. Uh, so when we lived in Nigeria, there were, to my recollection, the time we were there, two or maybe three coups. And I can remember clearly my uh, parents saying to me, when I was saying, oh, we're going down to the beach, which we went to every sort of Saturday, Sunday, and going, oh, we can't today because the army are down there. Uh, executing people on the public beach. <laughs> wow. And, you know, yeah, as a small child, I don't know. Maybe it's just because my mother and father are very protective and also quite matter of fact, and I felt very secure around my father and mother all the time. My mother, Irish, was one of those people I could almost do no wrong. So I knew she was always there to stand up for me. Uh, so it didn't seem to affect me. And of course, I never saw any of this. I lived a very sort of cloistered lifestyle where we had uh, gardeners, guards, drivers and stuff, which we sounds, you know, sort of, well, it's all rather nice, but we had to, you know, we, we weren't allowed to drive. My parents weren't allowed to drive full stop. Uh, and we had to have guards because we were a target. So I lived in this very safe little enclosure. So that never really affected me. I never you know, saw the horrors of how to run anywhere or leave anywhere. Yeah, well, but I suppose, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, well, interesting thing. So even though you had that idyllic um, experience within the four walls, kind of like, you know, a soldier in a base in, let's say, Afghanistan, where, you know, when they're in their, in their base, they're safe, but there's that lack of ability to have the freedom to walk outside the doors. Do you think there was an element of that that may have played in? Um, in, in Nigeria, yes. In Tanzania, it was much more relaxed. And I just spent my youth running around outside. Uh, Nigeria, a bit of that. You know, we weren't allowed out of the compound on our own at all. Uh, I think the furthest I'm thinking about it now that I ever went on my own was down the street. But that, thinking about it, was always within sight of one of the guards on the gate. You know, and probably following me when I really think about it, just a little sweet store. 
down there. So yeah, I, I, the only thing when I think back on it is because we bounced around so much, one of the things I've noticed, and I've noticed this with other people that I may have had a similar experience with their upbringing, is you, you're not quite rootless, uh, but you don't have that, oh, as a group of friends you've known from childhood and all this. I never had that. You know, I suddenly dropped back in Leeds at the age of about 11, uh, coming from a, a boarding school, and it was like, right, grammar school in Leeds, off you go. And it's like, all oh, right, whole new friends. So that side of it, I've, I've always thought, that's kind of interesting. I wonder what it's like not to be like that. But of course, I've got no idea <laughs> because it wasn't like that for me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The other, the other angle of looking at that is, you know, the, the tribal side. So, you know, there's so, so much healing being part of something, belonging to something. But, you know, some of these, these military children do find themselves going from place to place to place that, that deep internal yearning to be part of something and, and they're kind of plucked from one tribe and then dropped in another. I'm sure that kind of psychology plays in a little bit as well. That's, you know, that, that's interesting. I, I haven't thought of it in that way. But one thing I've always said when people ask me, how, how do you manage all of this, uh, is sport. You know, I'm big sporting family. And in, in my family, it's, it's rugby. Uh, so wherever I went, I, I joined the sports team and joined the rugby team. I mean, I'm old enough now that we're playing sort of full contact rugby at eight. That's all the ridiculousness. Uh, but that, I guess that's how I did it. You know, I found my tribe quite quickly because I'd go and join the rugby team or the athletics team. And I had a, a certain natural gift for it, I suppose. Uh, so I usually got into the team. Uh, and then, of course, you make friends and are quite close-knit when you're in that group. So, yeah, I suppose in some ways, yeah, I always, I always managed to find my tribe through sport, which is something that's you know, stayed with me completely when I look at it. I'm very aware of that's how I, I manage my own stress and stuff like that is, is through sport. Yeah. Do you still play rugby now? <laughs> I'm good. I am I'm 54 years old now. <laughs> uh, and strangely enough, for the last game of rugby I had, and I hadn't played it for decades, uh, was when I was 50. <laughs> and a bunch of people I trained with at a CrossFit gym, really into rugby. Uh, and we all kind of missed it. And uh, one of them still played, a younger guy, and he said, we're having a sevens competition. What do you think? <laughs> so a bunch of us went, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> And we did. And I tell you, at 50, you do not bounce as much as you did when you were in your <laughs> 20s. <laughs> but it was great. I loved it. I wouldn't go back to doing it again because it, it really did hurt. And I thought, I've got enough injuries I'm carrying at the moment without aggravating them. But I love, yeah, yeah. And we got to the final. So what can you do? Brilliant. Well, I was going to ask you that. So I'm, I've uh, been in CrossFit now for, I always get the bloody... Um, uh, years wrong in my mind. It's, it's 15, I think, 14, 15 years, but pretty early on, like 2007 ish. Um, and was amazed. I've been an athlete my whole life, a martial artist, but I was amazed how, how pertinent it was to, to that and then to, to being a fireman as well. What, what was your introduction and journey through CrossFit like? Uh, well, mine was, uh, my, I should, I should mention this, my wife, Rachel, when I first met her, we started talking about rugby. And so I started puffing my chest out a bit and talking about things I'd done until I found out that she played for North of England 
and had trials for England at rugby. So, oh, wow. <laughs> in, in goes the chest. <laughs> sit, yeah, sit my mouth and thought, better listen <laughs> to what she's saying. But I, I did a, 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 I was very into cyclocross uh, and, and mountain biking. And then I had a, an accident and I tore a disc in my back. And that meant cycling, climbing, all that was out. And uh, Rachel was working as a brand manager and Reebok got in touch with her company and said, we're doing this thing called CrossFit. Could you go down and have a look at it for us? And we'd like you to some manage it in the UK. And she just came back to me and went, I think I found the thing for you why you can't do cycling and why your back's repairing. And so I went down and it was in a, a basement of an old factory. <laughs> there were no mirrors, a very, you know, the old school type CrossFit went to say, right, I'll do a workout with you. It's five minutes. And I remember Rakesh and Stu, who's a firefighter, actually, Stuart and Andre, firefighters who owned it, still do, uh, said, okay, do this workout. This is it, five minutes. And I thought, I'll blast at this. It's not heavyweight and I've got a good engine. Four minutes later, on my knees, crawling across the gym, signing a form saying, yeah, I'll join. And <laughs> exactly like you. I just thought, I love this. It had everything. I had the competitive side. I could manage it again. And I have never stopped. You know, I just, I did it. That was, wow. That was, what's it now? Eight, nine years ago. It was one of the first, I'd know people and you'd never really heard of it in the UK, but yeah, I loved it. It just reminded me of training. I was playing rugby and stuff like that. Uh, the camaraderie, the meeting people, the fact it was so open. That anyone could anyone could join it, and one of the things that's always been about the Jaguar, which has a place called Form in Leeds, is they've always had more women than uh, men as members. Always, They're really sort of encouraging. I love that. I love that. So you have to go into the gym and have lots of tester and flying around. People can control themselves and just get on with it. I stuck with it, and uh, my friends still laugh at me. <laughs> You're still doing that, are you? I'm like, still trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting what you said about um, the female athletes, though, because it's something I've discussed a lot. Um, is CrossFit has really helped, not not solely, but helped, you know, redefine what a woman can or can't do. And obviously, that's I mean, when I say redefine, take away the the ridiculous myths of what women could and couldn't do. Um, but I think it's really improved the pool of great candidates for police, fire, military, because now mm. these women are, you know, I mean, there's, there's multiple female athletes I could think of that outwork, outlift me. And I'm, I'm not the biggest boy in the world, but I'm not tiny. But yeah, so I think it's done a huge amount for, you know, for the female athletic side. Definitely. I think it's given them, a, and I think part of that, what we say is like that, that redefining it, it's, you could argue it's more redefining sort of the, an aspect that's been put on them because they were always capable, as we know. And all of a sudden, I think it opened up and it just said, egos at the door, come in, do what you do. That's all we ask. 100%, nothing less. And all of a sudden, you find it, you know, this mental strength and endurance and ability to grind things out. And you're having your ass handed to you on a plate. <laughs> you're thinking, and I don't mind. You know, this is great. And then they shine and it's thinking, because you know Sam Briggs, or you heard of Sam Briggs, I'm guessing. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Well, that's how they got, because the friends, Stu and Andre are friends with Sam Briggs from both firefighters and they met at the firefighter games and came back and went, oh, what's this? And then set it up. But that sort of example, and then, you know, it's functional. And that's what I say to people. This, everything I do, this helps. 
Well, you know, one of the things in France I do is uh, we were renovating an old French house, which is why I was across here quite so much rather than in England at first. And all the CrossFit stuff did that, picking up bags of cement, moving drywall, stuff like that. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I just see it as part of my life now. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, Sam Briggs is someone I've wanted to try and get on the podcast one day. I mean, she's the pinnacle of, you know, female fitness in, in her prime and also a firefighter. So she'd be a, a great person. I'll speak. Well, I'm, I'm going to speak to Andre later. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention that. <laughs> I've, I've done this and uh, you'd be interested in speaking to Sam because he knows her very well. So. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Well, then back to, to your younger years. When you were in the, the kind of senior school ages, what were your career aspirations back then? <laughs> uh mine or my parents <laughs> <laughs> let's hear both <laughs> yeah well i mean well I, it turns out and i found this out when i was doing my masters uh, that i'm dyslexic and they only found out i was dyslexic because they coded the papers and there were quite a, a number of international students on my course and it was marked down paper has passed but there's a lot of syntax errors uh, their English isn't good enough. And of course, looked up the code, found it was me. <laughs> I am English. So therefore, there's a problem. So but I was also quite bright at school. I've got a good memory for stuff. Uh, got to 16. Most of my friends left, went, went and got jobs. But my parents wanted me to stay on and do the university thing. But by the time I was 17, you know, I was still hanging around with my friends who'd left. They had money. I'd got a part-time job. By the time I was 18, the university, I was, did not care. <laughs> I wanted to work and join in with them. And I was lucky enough that, you know, those were the days when, when I finished Friday, had an interview Friday afternoon at RF Bamba, where they built Challenger 2 tanks, uh, organized by some friends who'd left. And Monday morning started work. You know, it was back, back in the day in the 80s when you could walk into a job, really. And so I just decided, no, I want, I, I want to go and work as much all my friends were doing. University was didn't appeal to me. So I left work there for, with the tanks for a while. Uh, at the same time, I had a retail job. Uh, really enjoyed that, kept that on. And then I was offered a managerial position in that. And so I just kept on doing that. So I was about 24, at which point I got bored <laughs> with that and thought, you know, I want to be challenged. Uh, and someone said, Oh, Mark, all you do is play sport. All you do is run, uh, do triathlons, rugby, whatever you can get your hands on. Why don't you do a sports degree? And I'd never heard of this. I was like, what, a degree in sports? Someone's going to, I can educate myself around what I do. So I went to Carnegie up in Leeds, uh, just walked in, <laughs> knocked on the door, talked to the guy around the course, uh, Ron, who's very nice, and said, yeah, come in, chat. And he said, yeah. Sure, start next year. It'd be great to have you on board. And yeah, so the whole thing just changed in, in one go. I worked hard, saved money up for, for being at university and not having money. And yeah, that was it. Suddenly uh, at 25, I, I jumped into a sports degree, sports science at Carnegie. I think it was maybe a couple of years before, like I think I was 23, but I did the same thing. I went to university in North London and did sports science. And it was it was great. I competed as a taekwondo athlete for that university and King's College as well. However, I had this envision that I was going to leave after it was a two year degree initially, you know, with all these coaching skills and doing all these sports. <laughs> and then I got in there and realized it was all lab coats and stopwatches. And I was like, ah, yeah. shit. <laughs> this wasn't quite what yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> Well, it's, it's sort of the same for me because I, I thought, great, 
And and Carnegie the first year, you just did yeah everything. So I ended up doing dance, which I I, I mocked. So I, cause I can't dance anyway. But I now think I can. I think everyone can dance because I've been educated. Uh, but I loved it. I suddenly thought, wow, this is really hard. And there were some dancers on the course, and I trying to do the things they could do and couldn't manage it. So the whole thing was kind of mind blowing and opening all sport up to me. But luckily, I suppose I like the science bit. Being dyslexic, I didn't know at the time. I was. I find it much easier to deal with the lab coats and stopwatches and biomechanics. And then the psychology clicked. And so I majored in health psychology and went to work with children and disadvantaged children and looked at how you know we could use sports psychologically to, to help improve their situation and, and their, the way they thought and felt. I suppose so when I look at what I do now, I, I can pinpoint it back to that sport thing still. And, and in a lot of my training on hostile environment sports, I still use athletes as examples. Brilliant. Yeah, I took away a lot, like I said, more, I think, from the people and what they did outside the actual, you know, contents of the textbook. But yeah, I mean, it was a very broad, broad um, spectrum, you know, within the sports realm that we covered as well. Um, so touching on that then, so you work for the NHS with, working with the children, is that right? Yeah, so I, I left, uh, when I, I left with Madrid, I actually went worked part-time uh, in an outdoor centre with disadvantaged children where they'd send them for a week's holiday and this sort of respite thing. Uh, and I was, that stage, I was decided I really liked counselling. I'd done one counselling course as well while I was at university. So I went to Sheffield and did a group psychology course for a year whilst I was working. And I've always been lucky. I've always met people at the jobs I've had who've been just a really good influence on me and really said, you're good at this, you should do this. Or push yourself there, Mark, you've got a talent for that. Uh, and so that's what happened. I started thinking, oh, actually, I like working with children. I kind of like the psychology of it. I did that. And then from that, went to work for the NHS and worked for what's called Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. And my background in that, or my specialism, I suppose this goes back to what you said at the beginning, it's the academic side. Uh, it was very much the the face-to-face, looking at the research, doing one-to-one therapy, and I did group stuff. But I specialised quite quickly in violence, uh, and I worked with, uh, looked after children. So children have been taken into care. Uh, and I was very interested in, you know, why are these children particularly violent, or why do they react violently to situations? So I did a bit of looking at right and left brain and how things happen and how they develop. Uh, and yeah, worked for the NHS, uh, got loads of training for them, which was great. So lots of different models and then got seconded to the education side. So they paid for 50% of my time to go into schools and try and work with teachers, particularly with uh, violent young, young children. Right. Well, I would love to spend a little time exploring that because the, the mental health side obviously is, is a big part of, of this podcast. I mean, physical and mental health I and mean, all these things overlap. Um, but I had the mental health of children really like slammed in my face last year when my son was what they call Baker acted here. He, very long story short, was, was looking upset in a classroom. They, kept asking him what's wrong he said well i'm i'm imagining this thing you know they said well what are you imagining oh this one kid in the class that's been bullying me about you know hurting him the next thing he's locked away in a psychiatric ward for three days 
Um, yeah, yes. So, you know, and again, I realize it's, there's a systemic problem, a systemic knee jerk with the school shootings here where, you know, they've, these isolated incidents, which are horrendous, you know, are causing an entire nation to, you know, the pendulum swung so far the other way. When he was there, there were several children from his same middle school, just that one school cycling in and out. Um, so, you know, the, the, the mental health of children, I think is a very, very important topic for us to, to discuss as, you know, as, as a world. Um, so, and then obviously the violence is a huge thing, especially in England. We're seeing you know, so much knife crime at the moment. Um, so, so tell me what you initially saw, you know, with your interactions, especially on the violence side. Uh, well, I suppose this comes from the particular way I look at it, but I, I found this true in you show me an adult who's really violent and i will show you a child who's been traumatized and i've i've never not seen this now of course there are you can you can look at cases where you know a sociopath or a psychopath or that diagnosis that's slightly different so what i'm talking about is well within the the bell curve here of otherwise absolutely fine with this ability to move from nothing to violence really quickly. And one of the things I find, and one thing that I'm still sort of fascinated by, and I do a bit of positive psychology around it quite a lot, is shame and the, the concept of shame uh, and threat. And as an emotion, shame is it's described as a massive emotion. So you've heard of the phrase when we're embarrassed, oh, I just wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. Because what we want to do is to remove ourselves or the shameful person from that situation, which is either people are looking at us and seeing our faults. And so lots of these children I found, if they were put in a situation where they felt their self, they felt they were being shamed, they didn't have a lot of strong psychological, emotional defenses where they would be, well, that's not true. Well, that's, that's hurtful, but that's what it is. It would cut to something inside them that they felt was hidden. Uh, one of the definitions of shame is, is to be hidden. And that was being exposed. And so they had to shut up what was exposing it. So you can imagine a teacher saying, oh, being frustrated, oh, why can't you just do this? Now that comes across as a real cut to them. And so they, I have to shut this up. And they can run away or they can fight. And if you look at children who are particularly shameful, they've usually got some sort of abuse in the background or particular groups I dealt with, they're used to violence. So they're used to being here. They know when a threat happens, it's likely to be pain following it. So they learn very quickly. And the brain develops like this as well. It's been shown to develop like this. It's particularly if you go to prisons, look at young men, their brains develop like this. They don't cascade. They don't go, what did they say? What did that mean? Could that mean this? What should I do? What's a good thing? They waterfall. They go, something bad's happening. That was a threat, attack. And they jump to violence in a way that lots of people don't because it's a natural defense they've learned. So that was part of what I discovered. So I would look at these children and think, what's going on? What is, what is the thing that triggers you that you make this big jump? And you could see it. And once you get an anger shame spiral, they feed each other. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like putting, it's like you get a fire and you think, the last thing we need here is something flammable near it because it's just going to go. And then you get shame, 
we get anger and of course they lash out and everyone's shocked and they register that so they realize they've done something wrong so that's more shame more anger and it just goes into cycle so yeah that was what i found i mean with children of states when i worked there i did find it and it's, it's very surprising how quick it was to go straight into psychiatry drugs something like this my background was much more therapeutic okay there's a reason for this what is going on medically there's nothing wrong here this is emotional mental health work what is going on we don't need to put someone in a secure unit for three days to to do this that's how does that help a shame a shame violent system so that's kind of how i focused on it when i i went there there are other ways to focus on it there's one that i found kind of clicked most times yeah now Obviously, this is a vicious circle, and there are so many, or vicious cycle, we say in England. Um, uh, there are so many, you know, elements to it, and, and I want to discuss one in a minute um, that I think has definitely contributed to some of this more lethal violence that we're seeing at the moment. But with you seeing that hurt people hurt people, you know, did you ever kind of have any ideas of how to break that cycle of violence so these poor young kids are not basically turned into violent adults? Do you know that's yeah? I mean that's that that that's the million dollar question, isn't it? How do we do that? Um, on the whole, you can use various techniques depending on the levels that people are at, the children are at. Usually, I mean, I went in quite specialist, so I'd be teaching broad things to the the general class of you know. Actually, you need to send teach, for instance, you need to focus on so and so for five minutes at the beginning, but you need to do it in a gentle way. You know, don't don't bring lots of attention on them, just a gentle, how are you doing, stuff like this. Make them responsible for doing something well. So, you know, you've done really well today. You know what? Let's have five minutes at the end of class where we all play thanks to so-and-so's behavior. So little rewards like that, and that works across the board. Then you get to ones that were more entrenched, and part of that was trying to find something uh, that they could feel good about. I always remember one school I worked in where the head was very good, and we started working with the local community with these children who would <laughs> play truant. They'd run away from school, but what they'd do is they'd play truant by not going into school, but hanging around school, you know, even climbing on the school roof because they had nowhere else to go, and actually they, they recognised feeling quite safe at school rather than at home and on the streets. And we worked with uh, mechanic shops you know, repairing cars and so they could go out on an afternoon and work with men fixing things and that worked really well for them and so that side of you could find little things like that once you go into the the real nitty-gritty where i worked in where we worked in i wouldn't work in secure units so i'd work in children homes that were open so they could just run off and when i worked in the states with uh, the gang children in the states we'd been incarcerated and we took them out to wilderness programs it was the same there I wasn't, I wasn't overly keen, though I recognised the need for secure units. I thought we could take away them and give some responsibility and say, we're not locking you up because we believe there's nothing to lock you up for, but we are going to restrict what you do because we also believe that you, you, know, you need help and support to function. Uh, and with them, that was just way more intense, slowly chipping away at their problems, getting them to talk to you. Uh, but yeah, it was, yeah, this could be a long slog with some of them. But all hopeful, I have to say. Well, I had a, a few people that have kind of, you know, set up um, organizations that help children. You know, some were for 
children who lost a, a mother or father to you know, a war, you know, the military, uh, you know, children. And then they had Tom Hewitt who took street children from South Africa and taught them how to surf. And it was very interesting because they would do a surf session, session and then they would do a counseling session on the beach after. So they've got all their energy out, you know, they're sitting there listening to the ocean, the sun shining. Um, and they said that, you know, they were able to get the kids to open up so much more once they'd had that outlet. And again, like we said, that tribal thing, they were part of something. They were now this group of kids that were surfing together. What did you see as far as the effects of, you know, the outdoor retreats and these these uh, places that you were taking these kids? Uh, I mean, part, partly was uh, the pleasurable side of it for me was the fact that you suddenly saw them being children, you know. Uh, so I mean, the, the big one when I when I worked for the organisation, I did actually trained. I got a training visa in the states, and I ended up there for a year and a half doing the wilderness camps where we take children, and we would take sort of high tariff violent teenagers who'd already been incarcerated, mainly gang members, uh, as was the case. And I have to say, when I think and I think really hard about it, <laughs> these were some violent individuals to put it mildly they were very good at violence so it was a bit of a i was quite glad we had quite a lot of special forces because uh, we had a, a sort of a, a rough riders side to it and a military side to it, as well as a school in the outdoors so i was quite glad they were there to be fair but i would say out of all of them there was only two or three i thought you're, you're really gone it's really difficult i can't see you not ending up back in prison with violence you know they were just very difficult needed more than we could give them uh and i would say a secure unit for for their safety or other people's safety would be good but the rest were just children you know we showed them how to ride horses and had had to break camp at five in the morning when we were moving and taking climbing and mountain bike and they just children. and what the, the key with what we did is we tried to slow their lives down you know, you and same with the surfing, I guess. You faced with a hike or a climb or a mountain bike or a run, there's nothing you can do. You just have to get on and do it. You know, the the world doesn't care. <laughs> it's it's neither happy or sad a mountain, whether you climb it or not. <laughs> you know, it's just there. And so that was kind of like, look, this isn't personal. This is just about you. How do we manage this together? How do we do this? And interestingly, the surfing, we did a, a similar thing. They, they had to do a two-week experiential out. I mean, really, down in Cochise Stronghold in Arizona, we had to be on our toes with the outdoor stuff there because we had to get water driven in. And part of that was for three days, we would take them off to separate spots. They couldn't see each other. And we would leave them with the food and water and say, this is your camp. You know what to do. Make it. One of us will be across. You choose who you want that person to be for an hour a day. And we will talk to you. And you can talk about what you want. And, you know, the things they told us then, <laughs> they hadn't mentioned for six months, you know, in all our group counselling, was amazing. And you look at them thinking, oh, my God, it's taken you to settle a year. And now, and now you're telling us your worries and fears. And there was something, I'd like to love to say it was us, but actually it's part, I think it's been that wilderness experience for so long that, like I say, that's you come off the surf bit, just being you in the ocean, you sit down, all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, this feels normal. So yeah, that was, that was, that was very powerful. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed that hard work though. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, but I mean, you know, 
like you said, if you change one life, then all that work was worth it. Um, what I want to really kind of touch on as well, when I talked about one of the contributing factors, especially in the gangs here in, in America, is the the you know the drugs, the illegal drug trade. I had uh, Johan Hari on, who wrote uh, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. Mm, yeah, uh, um, I he's, saw that one. Yeah, he's uh, he's incredible, but. I like I told you, my family, some of my family are in Portugal, and, and I was made aware about four years ago that they had decriminalized drugs and completely reversed their their epidemic that they had. And so now these these addicts became patients, you know, and they basically cut the head off the snake with drug trafficking, drug sales. Um, and I think, you know, for me, watching the so-called war on drugs that we have here. You know, our prisons have gone from 350,000 in the 70s to 2.3 million prisoners now. You know, we, we have this horrendous uh, epidemic at the border of these horrible murders, you know, again, completely fueled by drugs. We see the gangs. I mean, I can't, I've lost track of how many teens, you know, I, I put a yellow sheet over that are a victim of, you know, gang murders, retaliation. Um, what is your uh, opinion, philosophy, thoughts on uh the the factor of the illegal drug trade the war on drugs on the co- contribution to the violence that we see especially in our youth I, I, I think it goes hand in hand and it's a horrible match isn't it uh so you you'll get lots of people join gangs uh, with, with the hispanic gangs i dealt with from california uh, i would talk to them and i say look everyone in my family's in the gang you know, this is not just me being wild. This is my aunt, my uncle, my mum, my dad, my grandparents. So I'm in there. And also, it's quite violent where I am. So I'm not in a gang. I get jumped. So it was all this cycle. So it's partly that. So you get this bunch of people who have joined their tribe, and their tribe demands certain things off them, which will also be there, and usually with some violence going on. Now, of course, they're surrounded by this, and then how do I get money? How do I get jobs? I've dropped at high school. I'm not doing this. And, you know, the easiest way to do it is drugs. And if you look at the statistics, I remember from the book ages ago, the free economics and stuff, where they talked about studying this, only a few people make the money, you know, make the real money that's going to get them anywhere. And I have a friend who's a counselor who works in prisons in the UK and does this. And one of the first things he does, and because it's counseling and it's, it's all uh, confidential, he sits down and does a money chart with them. What did you gain? What, what, how much money would you make from doing that? And you're signing on, so you're getting benefits, you're getting this. Let's go down and do it. And he said, when they saw the pitiful amount of money they had, because <laughs> he'd say, right, you're in here for five years, so we're going to divide everything by that because you're not earning any money and you're not seeing your children and you're not doing this. You know, he'd say they got nothing but the glamour, you know, the idea this is how we'll make money and you get bought into it and then you resent society because it means nothing to you. You know, you see adverts on television, everything's great. You think, well, that'll never be for me. So it's an easy lure. Plenty of people willing to give it to you. You can sell it. You make some money, you get some status, and it feeds back into this, I am now somebody. And then you're violent. And if you're used to violence, you're much quicker at doing it. Though I would still say I dealt with <clears throat> uh, youth who were violent. You know, that's what they're incarcerated for. Most of them weren't naturally violent. And when you got to know them, you'd see that a few of the lead, they were capable of violence, but they had a few leaders who were naturally predisposed to being violent, had no problem with it. But in a calm situation, they would become violent. These other ones wouldn't. 
they'd wait to be led. But when violence broke out, and it did a few times, they were pretty good at it, pretty quick at it. But you throw this horrible mix of money, respect, violence, access to firearms and knives in the UK, the background of abuse, trauma, or hopelessness they come from. And you're not going to beat that with a war on drugs. You know, when I was working in Arizona, I think the average life expectancy was 22 years old for some of the Hispanic gang members. And I used to say to them, say, man, you're 22. You will have done nothing with your life by 22. It's all ahead of you. But you're in that system. And the only way to really, and I'd agree, the way to break that is, is partly how Portugal did it. Portugal's different from the States, different from the UK. You have to get this money. You have to stop that money that will be paid. I mean, you look at them. I just read zero, zero, zero and been looking at the horror. Because I used to live in Arizona, 26 miles from the border, and watched with horror. And the violence there is, I mean, it's disturbing. This isn't people being shot. This is decapitations being burnt. This is ISIS-level lunacy, to be honest. You've got to somehow nip that. And what's fueling that is the ability to make money, to threaten people, to buy people, to do that. So I think the war on drugs is great, but let's not call it a war. Let's not shoot at people. Let's call it a war on the casualties of drugs. You know, the, Then we can deal with the people who are addicts, the people who have problems with drugs. Then you can deal with the people who have just gone to it because they have to do something. And then you'll get to the point where it becomes more difficult for the people who are actually really making a lot of money from doing this to function. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. I, I look at people when they talk about it from governments and all this lot, and I try not to judge because I think it's a problem from hell. Yeah, know? yeah. And I think the people, a lot of people listen to this, I talk about this a lot, you know, the first responders around the world really get to pull the curtain back and see the truth, you know, and we see that it's not working, you know. I mean, I've, I lost count of how many ODs I ran on, how many ODs luckily we were able to save. It's probably one of the true life-saving calls that a paramedic has is if they get Narcan to a, an opiate overdose in time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I remember doing economics at college. I just did one, one class and the most basic concept, supply and demand. If there's no demand for illegal drugs because you've legalized, you criminalized whatever it is, and you start address the mental health of these addicts and get them off whatever whatever their drug is, that drug could be social media, you know, gambling, porn, whatever. But you you fix those now. Those dealers, you know, and you and you now create a safer streets, more time for the police officers of the world to focus on catching the dealers and the smugglers more time in the court systems for them to, to come down on them, more time, you know, more attention in the prisons to, to re rehabilitate some of them that maybe were able to turn around, you know? So it's like a win, 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 win. But it takes a leader with a set of balls to follow Switzerland, to follow Portugal, and that's what we're missing. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of fear, isn't there? Because for some reason, you know, there's, I mean, I've, so I've got my daughter. And I think ahead, growing up and what she's going to have to face, and particularly things like social media is a, is a big worry. They're being looked at all the time. We're talking about shame before. Who are you? Are you popular? Are you worth this? Are you worth nothing? By a voice that never stops. And when I think about drugs, I think, oh, oh it's a minefield to deal with. Because <laughs> I, I want to be kind of, look, you know, 
substance abuse is substance abuse. And that can be tobacco or alcohol, cannabis or opiates. You know, it's, it's abuse of a substance. But at the same time, <laughs> I think I've also got to say, if you get drunk, you might fall over and hurt yourself. If you smoke, then that's just dumb because you're eventually going to get some form of cancer or a heart attack. If you take opiates, you could die. So, you know, as, as an individual, and I guess the same for you, we're stuck with struggling to find, oh, man, I want to be really sort of like, we've got to do this right. But the consequences are really high. So I think as individuals in all populations, we all carry that fear for our family. So, and when we're scared, we don't take risks. And if the risk is, oh, we should legalize it and then maybe my child will take drugs, we're not going to legalize it. Despite the fact, as I repeatedly say to people, and my friend who does a substance abuse in prison is much better than that, is, says, you say, we'll stop them getting drugs. And he went, you cannot stop someone who wants to get drugs getting drugs, Mark. That's the point. <laughs> if someone wants to get drug A, B, or C, it's there. They can get it. It's not very hard. So you're not actually stopping them. So yeah, but it's it's a difficult one. I think it's going to take some more places like Switzerland and Portugal, more proof coming through. And gently, as people go, see that that wasn't that scary. We got through that. We got through that. Maybe we should think about this in another way. Maybe we should look at all the tax that's coming in that's helping all these people. Maybe we should start to gently push forward onto other drugs. Now, I'm not saying legalize heroin, <laughs> which I think people do, but decriminalizing it would certainly help. Yeah, and the safe the safe injection centers that they have, I think, is incredible. Like you said, some people are going to keep taking it, but we have police officers that have died just from touching fentanyl that's so strong over here that it went through their skin and and you know killed them. So now you you regulate the the heroin or the methadone or whatever you know and then they they inject out of sight under the supervision of a medical person and then they leave you know so you take it out of the shadows the same way you know prostitution i mean i, I remember you know, again my career multiple um prostitutes that ended up dead from either being murdered or again overdoses or whatever but they were again driven into the shadows and then you look at amsterdam and i think i believe nevada i know it's the whole state where they're safe and they're tested and they don't have to hide and, and, you know, be abused by people. So, yeah, I think just taking it out of the shadows and back to where it needs to be, where it was prior to the 20s when Harry Anslinger's racist, you know, tirade created this prohibition in the first place and, and put it back in the hands of the medical personnel. That's what a drug's supposed to be. It's the <laughs> medical community. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, there was... Uh... That you, you get this sort of gap between the benefits to society of having a, a really high-functioning program. And in Leeds, uh, a friend of mine uh, used to run, psychiatrist used to run the drugs rehabilitation program for the whole of Leeds. And I remember chatting to him and said, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the big drug this, this season then? And ketamine was coming in at the time. They talked about how awful that was, in, just in terms of the damage it physically did to people. And I said, no, it was heroin, not a big thing. They sort of joking. He went, no, we've got it under control. He said, actually, Leeds has the highest level of functioning heroin addicts in the UK. I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, yeah. So because we've got such a good program, heroin addicts come to Leeds to go on our program and they get function. And he said, by function, Mark, I mean, they're out working. 
and they come and see us. We gradually get them off, but they take the drug safely and they have jobs and they have a normal life. And you wouldn't know <clears throat> that they're on this program because we've got them functioning. And I thought, wow, that is amazing. I'm wandering through this city full of what people describe as heroin addicts and they're addicted to the substance who actually are functioning like lots of other people, but they're carrying this disease with them and trying to get over it. And so that sort of program, I thought, wow, that's good that you don't even notice it. And yet they're actually helping. A heroin addict is now part of your community doing a good thing. And their addiction is just that. It's a disease on the side that yeah. they're managing. Yeah. Amazing. And then while they're doing that and now they're, you know, they're not scared, they're not shamed, as we said earlier, they're able to now address the mental trauma that sent them down that path. Because as, as Johan talks about, heroin is what we will give to, you know, a, an elderly person after their hip operation, their hip replacement. You know, it's it's a, a painkiller that we've used, the opiate family, for a long, long time. So it's <laughs> yeah, not... Hospital. <laughs> yeah, so it's not. And most of us, you know, maybe take it for a week or whatever, and then we're like, all right, I'm good. So it's not even that, this this fallacy we've been sold, that, you know, these are, once they get their hooks into you, then that's it, you're screwed, is, is, is fallacy too. It's why are people reaching for any tool to escape from reality that we need to really address? That's, and that's a nice way of putting it. Why does their pain require medicating again and again and again? And that's because the, the pain's emotional. Unless you deal with that, that pain will stay there and all of a sudden they want relief. And this is substance. Alcohol is the same. You know, this is this is why people turn to substances to to hide a pain. Oh well, actually, say hide. I'd say to to get some relief from that pain. And then, of course, there's the other side where there are people who are in long term pain who end up becoming addicted to painkillers because no one's giving them sort of some good psychological strategies to deal with pain, which has been shown to be very successful. And they just say, here, take this incredibly powerful opiate. That'll be great, even though we're not going to do anything about your back, which is never going to change for the next four or five years. But hey, how off you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When there's movement practices that can reverse that pain. That's what's so sad. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I want to move on to to yeah, the next chapter, which I think is fascinating. So Medicine Sans Frontier or Doctors Without Borders, people recognize. Um, tell me about that and, and the tsunami. Well, I uh, it was a strange one. I'd... Uh, I, I, I don't know, maybe because I was brought up a sort of Catholic, <laughs> the, the lingering guilt had still stayed there. And I, I, I just started to think, maybe I, I'm at a stage of my career where I feel pretty confident I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm pretty good at this. I, I should volunteer. Uh, and it's been shown, it's, it's strange, you know, volunteering for something has shown to be immensely good for your mental health. So maybe it's just something going on. <laughs> I was stressed at work or something, but I thought, I, I need to do this. And I only wanted two things. I only wanted to deal with conflict because my background's in violence. And so there's War Child and uh, MSF. And MSF, at the time, only went into conflict zones. And so I liked MSF. My father he'd supported them. So I went for an interview, <laughs> which was great. Uh, and they said, where wouldn't you go? And I was like, well, I'm not overly keen on Chechnya at the moment. And they went, yeah, we're just pulling out of Chechnya. I think I mentioned three places, and each place I mentioned, they went, yeah, we're just pulling the mission for a few months, so you're not going there anyway. And then the tsunami happened. And I got a phone call saying, we don't normally get involved, but actually we're going to go to Bandarache. 
the first place it's hit. It's famous for seeing the big ship in the middle of the of the uh, city. Uh, so we're going to go there. Would you go along? We want to set up some clinics. Uh, and so I went to the NHS. I went to my uh, my boss and said, I'd like a sabbatical uh, to go there for six months to do this. I think it'd be really good in terms of what I can bring back. Uh, and also, I really want to do it. And he was great. I mean, there was, this is no criticism. He just went, look, we can't. I'll look into a few, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be no, just because the way the structure is. And he looked into it and kept us, look, we couldn't just say you can go. Uh, and so I just made the decision. I said, well, actually, I, I, I think I, I need to go. I think I, this is what I need to do at the moment. So I resigned. He was very good and said, look, normally we'd ask you to wait a month, but we're going to get together. We'll cover all your patients, stay a week to see them all, explain what's going to happen, and then you can get off. So don't worry about having to stay here if you want to go. And yeah, I flew out to uh, Bandarache, uh, went there, and uh, we recruited eight uh, as part of a team, as it was myself uh, and two other psychologists. Uh, we recruited eight uh, local psychologists, uh, but they didn't really have a background clinical. Like it was very much sort of business psychology and you know occupational psychology, organisational. So we thought, right, we'll set up clinics and we'll train them. We're here for six months, so we can do this. So they had classrooms, set them up, went to hospitals, went to communities, set up four clinics, two in each, so they could run it, paid them. And then we went around all the communities working with people who'd been through the tsunami. So tell me you know, what you saw as far as actually the impact um, on the infrastructure itself. And then you know what you saw community-wise with these men and women and children that literally one moment they were living their you know their lives and the next minute their entire you know existence had basically been flushed away uh as, well uh, from the infrastructure i mean I, I was fortunate enough in that when i was first there to get around from these really quite remote places uh everything wasn't it was all washed away so msf had, had actually uh got some helicopters and I was fortunate enough on one occasion where the South African ex-army guy who was a helicopter pilot said, I hear you're going to so-and-so, Mark. I've got space to want to jump in. Uh, and so went across and did the work. And then on the way back, he goes, do you want to see what it looks like along the coast? Because Bandarache was the first place to be hit by the tsunami, so it took the brunt. Uh, and it was, I mean, that and in the first week of meeting people, I have to say it was overwhelmed really just trying to find your feet and thinking, I can't deal with this. Well, I don't know what to do yet. It's probably more the therapeutic where I was thinking. But there was, we were flying over big rivers that would be maybe 50 yards across and you're going, oh, you see that river there? Yeah, see down there? That's where it was. And you'd see it just being moved. The whole lot of the land just moved. We were looking at what I thought were cliffs and you went, no, no, that was all vegetation, Mark. It's just the whole thing's been washed away and this is going on. 10, 12 meters comfortably up the side of these things. So everything had gone. You know, and the, if you look at the pictures, you'll see the picture with half this city disappeared and a ship, big container, was actually a generator ship sat in the middle of it. So all of that was, you know, forget roads and things like that. <laughs> they weren't there. You know, this thing moved rivers. So that was like, wow, okay, they've been through it. And then I landed, of course, I'm a psychologist and I've come with them. MSF, and so I must know I'm going to make everything better and sit down, talk to this person. I remember the first guy I spoke to uh, in his 
mid-60s, the only person left of his whole family. Cousins, brothers, children, everyone gone and saying, what do you do? What, what do I do, Mark? And there's lots of people looking at me. I'm thinking, wow, I have no answer for this guy. No answer. So I'm just going to have to listen and talk with him and hear his story. And I heard that story again. And of course, I was lucky. I had people that managed to escape. But people climbing trees, being caught on, trying to outrun it on motorbikes, you know, <laughs> catching them and going up and jumping. So the first week, it was just overwhelming because this was not normal loss. You know, this was everything that got. Uh, but then gradually, how do we work this? How do we manage this? And I realized, or we realized, I personally realized, and we've talked it through, that we couldn't do it as individuals. This is impossible. You know, I, I haven't got the capacity emotionally or mentally to do it. No force of will is going to push through good things on this. But we looked at the community, and actually, they were so embedded in the community. It was all very much underneath it, very sort of tribal, you know, local little branches here and people there. And we worked out, we're doing it wrong. We need to go and speak to the sort of the leaders of the community, be they religious, be they senior people, be they the head of the village. And we need to talk to them first because we have no authority here. We have no clout. They're looking at us like we've got this brilliant thing and we haven't. And then we clicked working with them and we talked to them, you know, what's going on in the village? How is it happening in the community? Who are you concerned about? What do you need? And sometimes you're just humble and say, you don't need me as a psychologist. What you need is the uh, Dutch ladies come across as brilliant at water. <laughs> we need to get sanitation sorted out. That'll make you better. And so we combined with that. So you suddenly became a small cog in a machine that was actually working. Uh, so we did that. And setting up community, going in, trying to work out what the best place to put these clinics were, talking to people. And suddenly you found out, oh, actually, yeah. This, we think this is going to work. So we, we actually wrote a plan. And then uh, MSF sent a Brazilian psychiatrist across who was, who was genius. It was such a pleasure listening to him. He spent a day with us and, and luckily <laughs> said, you've nailed it. This is perfect. What do you need? And we went, nothing. We just need permission to do it because it's not what your first plan was. Uh, and they went, yeah, and supported us all the way. MSF are very good at that. One of the things I really liked about them, despite the fact that they, I know they annoy some of the NGOs, they're very ground up. If you're on the ground and you see something and you think, no, 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 it needs to be like this, and you explain it, they listen to you. They don't top down tell you what to do. They give you a plan. If you get and go, that hasn't worked, they want you to tell them, and they deeply support that. It's sort of something they hold on tight to. Uh, so, yeah, so six months later, uh, said goodbye. Hopefully, the place was. Uh, I mean, it, lots of things we'd done. I think mainly through their amazing resilience. I mean, that place taught me how resilient humans were. Uh, yeah, things were, were slowly getting better. Well, it's interesting as well how you, you know, identified, like you said, that that the the priority, the triage, almost might not be the mental health initially. It might be putting you know clothes on the back, roof over their head, clean water. And that's something that I think we get a little uh, blinkered sometimes in 
responding to anything it can be you know uh, a fire call and you know ems call whatever it is but taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture and then putting the that the hierarchy of of needs in the right order and like well they're not gonna overcome their trauma if they're not even getting to sleep you know at night because they're yeah. too cold or they're hungry <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly and that's and that is one of the things i do now when there's been a, a sort of a big event or an accident or going to hospital. And I, the first thing I did, and then they want me to do mental health because that's what I do. And that's why they've paid all this money to send me somewhere. And I'm like, no, if they're in hospital with broken bones, concussion, they need to physically get better. I'll let them know that I'm here. I'll, I'll talk to them a bit about what we do and I'll let them talk to me if they want to, but I will be saying to them, get better physically. Don't worry. We're going to be here for you. When, when, when the bones have healed and you can move and you're in the hospital, we will still be here. And we'll still be here now if you want to talk, but let's look after you. And you, it's really hard to do any sort of mental health work with someone who's physically injured or, or needs physical things like food or water. You know, you get that sorted first, but you need them to be in a place where they can start to access what you're going to try to do. So, yeah, definitely go, go Maslow first. <laughs> Now, what about triage? Like when you first arrive on a scene that immense, how do you decide, you know, which village, which tribal leader, which area that you are going to address first? <laughs> That's that. Uh, well, on the blunt side of it, you get into cars and you drive and you come across them. You know, and we drove and would stay overnight in the middle of nowhere and drive further and you'd hear about another village. And you go up and you make the introductions and you say, is there anything we can do? You know, what are your needs? And you follow their lead. And then as, as you do this, of course, you build the connections. So you've been to that village. There's another village, 5K, where you don't know about, but they do. And they go, oh, so-and-so came across here with MSF and saved the children. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, they're coming back next week, come across. And so you, that, but the, the initial thing is you get you get into a vehicle and you drive to places or you walk the streets or you go and ask everyone else. And then gradually people start to know who you are. But getting right out into there, I mean, that's where it became a bit trickier because, of course, there was still a conflict going on. Uh, and the Indonesian government was pretty hardcore about things. Uh, and they were very keen to get into the hills. Uh, so you know, then that's when you've got to be a bit tricky. You've got to be a bit clever about going to these places and making contact because we, we refuse point blank to have any security forces because then you just get linked to them. Uh, so you have to be a bit careful about it. Uh, but yeah, you just push forward and ask. Right. And so yeah, and it's amazing. I mean, I think that's just it. Sometimes you just need to take the first step, don't you? I mean, you know, whether it's the Vegas shooting or Katrina or, you know, 9-11, some of these incidents are so big that you can be paralyzed by overthinking it rather than just making decisions and saying, all right, here's, here's what we're going to do. Let's just start. Yeah, I think, I think that's what happened to me in the first week. I was just like, wow, wh- how, what do I do with this? You know, this is what, what can I, what can I do? And it's one of the things that I suppose I learned there that I've kept, with me and i now talk to lots of other people particularly ngos when i do the training with ngos is uh the value of humility in in protecting yourself in 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 sort of good self-care is understanding that you you can't change everything in one go it can't be done and it's not up to you to do it 
You're there to do your best. And your best is someday it might be just sitting there and looking at somebody and thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Another day, it might be, as you say, you get somewhere on time, like, wow, you look really ill. You need to come with me now. We're taking you to a medic. So it can go from just being quiet to being full, you know, hands-on about it. But the humility of giving yourself that break and saying, actually, no, don't put that hero, I'm going to fix everything on yourself because it cannot be done. And once you, once you do that, it's actually quite, it's quite a relief, you know, <laughs> because NGOs, frontline workers, I have to say, are dreadful for not being able to stop. It's the thing I say to more, they break themselves on the wheel because they just see so much needs doing and they cannot stop and they feel guilty about it. And I've been guilty of that myself. I was guilty of that in MSF. You know, somehow I went from getting up at eight o'clock in the morning to starting work at five o'clock in the morning. And we all did that as a group. No one ever said, should we start earlier? Someone just got up a bit earlier. So we all got up a bit earlier. And then by the end of it, it's five in the morning. We're under curfew. We weren't even allowed out of the compound till nine o'clock. But there we were. I had uh, Dr. Javid, um, let me make sure I get his last name right, Abdelmanim, um, who is one of the one of the top guys in MSF now. Um, and he was talking about, I think it was his first deployment. Um, I believe if my memory serves right, it was Ebola at that point, the outbreak. And yeah, I mean, he was just... You know, he 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 couldn't be awake long enough to try and save these men and women that were just dying left, right, and center. You know, and and he he got to the point where he basically had a complete meltdown. He burnt out. And I think that you're right. I mean, the first responders are the same. And I think that the shame that we talked about earlier, along with the guilt, the inability to save. You know, we take a lot of that back in the movies. I talk about this a lot. You know, someone has a heart attack, they jump on them with the paddles, they say clear, they pop them once and they jump up and give them a hug and name their children after them. You know, the reality is, nine, I mean, I've never had a code save in 14 years, but, you know, most most people might have one or two. Um, but yeah, that's not how it works. A lot of people die. A lot of people, you're too late. A lot of people burn in that house fire or bleed to death in that car. And it does, it, it stays with you. It, and I, I think you've you've had a, a number of really good points there, and I point this out to the uh, NGOs quite a bit that I work with, and to the others, We're saying that, and I, it's it's what's coming through from the NHS in the UK, uh, as I said, me and most of my work and time still there, really, in terms of professionally, uh, that ex- really experienced. These are ICU people. You know, so they're used to the, the sharpest end of the stick, as it were. And they're just watching people coming in. And reports are getting back. Common thoughts are, and we just sit there and watch them die. And we put them on the ventilator. We do this and we watch them die. And with all their training, all their skills, they cannot save them. And so part of what I'm doing at the moment in writing is saying that. I'm saying, you know, this is classic uh, post-traumatic reaction. We are not used to feeling vulnerable, especially when professionals. We're not used to feeling helpless. That's what we do. We help. We fix things. And when it comes and overwhelms us, we do feel, well, how, why did we fail? Even though you know you didn't fail, nothing could be done. I should have done something. I could, I could have done something. And guilt is a big thing that's coming through. And what we want to do and what we're trying to work at the moment is, is build, and this is advice I'm giving, is building the difference between guilt and shame. 
guilt is I'm a good person, something went wrong, but that doesn't define me. You know, I, I did my best, I'm, I'm good. Shame is I'm not a good person, something went wrong, I'm not a good person, I, I, that was me. And you need to remind people that you've got, you, know, you feel guilty, but you shouldn't feel guilt. You're just human, that's the thing you feel because you tried your best. But actually, life is really difficult and sometimes best way in the world doesn't go the way we want to. So that's, yeah, that's the kind of something we're working on at the moment is how to deal with these professionals that are having to deal with this and, and getting those feelings of vulnerability and hopelessness. Yeah, well, especially with the NHS. From, from an Englishman watching now across from the other side of the ocean, um, you know, what I've taken from this COVID outbreak is, you know, again, from a, a basal medical perspective as a, as a man who's worked on the streets for you know for 14 years is some of the things that we were told were just wrong and i'm all about you know being careful being cautious being considerate but you know the the numbers were definitely skewed in my opinion however i think it really exposed the fact that if you take a great healthcare system which i think the nhs fundamentally is and you cut them and cut them and cut them and cut them to the point they're running on a skeleton crew. And then you have an event that even magnifies the demand by 10%, you're going to overwhelm them. And, you know, I had a conversation with someone the other day and they're so, so right. The, the word hero came out. Oh, you know, heroic first responders are heroic doctors are heroic nurses. Well, calling people heroes doesn't fix the problem. It takes the blame off the administration and puts it on squarely on the responder, which happens in understaffing and all these other things. So I hope one takeaway is that people will realize the value of the NHS, the one true healthcare system in the world where the concept of everyone having healthcare was actually understood and we all contribute. And I'm a very, you know, healthy, fit man. And I have no problem contributing to other people and making sure they're okay, even though I barely use healthcare myself. I hope that they reinvest that, go away from that horrendous private model that we have in America that, you know, causes, you know, elderly men and women to work in stores just to pay for their freaking health insurance and, and support the NHS how they should be. I, th- I, think, I think it's, I mean, the NHS in, in the UK, as you know, has always sort of held that political sacred ground, you know, but there has been this, cutting and moving to a different model. And it's happened within CAMS, within the adult mental health service in particular. I know because I still have friends who work there and I watch what happens. And so there's this, you know that game where you're hiding the queen with the three cards. <laughs> so there's always three cards there, but you don't quite know where it's gone. And it's this idea that you're still getting the same service, but it's being done privately. And of course, to, to the lay person, that sounds great. But then you suddenly realise, oh, yes, it might be being a private, but they've upped all the numbers of how many people can be seeing. They've done all of this. They've moved that. They've taken all small community clinics away, but a big one. And of course, all those cuts actually mean people can't access the healthcare that they wanted to. But it kind of gets along. But then you get a big wave, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we can't cope. So the, the Nightingale Hospital at the XL Center, it's an amazing feat. I mean, I just, I was... Look at thinking, really? You're going to turn that into a fully functioning ICU ward? I'd like, I'd like to see this happen. And they did. What it fell down on, apparently, is 
it was great having all those things. They didn't have any ICU nurses or they didn't have enough. They never, they never got above 75 beds being able to be used because they've got the nurses. So you can put all the equipment in there if you haven't got people to run them and they couldn't be any old nurses. And this is like, I think what people didn't realize had to be trained nurses. It's quite difficult if you ventilate someone apparently. They thought they'd say, oh, yeah, we'll just borrow the extra ones from the hospitals. And the hospitals are like, well, <laughs> we haven't got any extra ones because they're really busy with the virus. And so at one point, the last figure I read was they never got uh, anywhere near capacity. They couldn't, they couldn't do more than 75 beds in one go. And that was dragging in ex-military. I've got some ex-military mates who went in to help them. So they got them in to do it. And they, you know, they haven't been doing this for a few years. Uh, so I think you're right, and I think it will change. I think I would imagine across the board, people will look at you know, healthcare systems now and think, particularly in Europe, what did we do well? How how come Germany was really good? Okay, they, they've got a brilliant public health system, which the UK have just got rid of effectively. But the Germans, and not because the Germans are brilliant, this is just because it happens, their structure is set up, that it works very well like that. So I think the lessons will be learned because obviously, you know, Lots of people have lost lots of loved ones, so there's going to be a lot of anger, and people are going to want some answers. So hopefully, fing- fingers crossed. Yeah, horrible as it is, things will change for the. Yeah, the irony is, and I, I please correct me if I'm wrong. If you know, um, but I'm pretty sure that we, you know, the the allies helped put some sort of you know national health style system in Germany, and they did the same with Japan. So our enemies after peacetime ended up with better healthcare than the Americans have now because the same kind of system was scrapped after, I believe it's after Roosevelt died. They kind of got rid of it. Um, but yeah, so, and here we are now. Japan had a very, very low incident being right next to China. Germany did incredibly well. And is that because the virus wasn't there or is their healthcare system contributing to a healthier nation, therefore a more resilient nation? These, I mean, these, I, I talked to, friends or epidemiologists who deal with this and particularly someone who've dealt with Ebola and stuff and they say yeah these are all things that are up in the air structurally uh, I think they said yeah Germany's worked very well because public it, it's each so imagine it'd be each state was actually completely in charge of its public health care in America and had funded it really well so instead of like the UK where we went oh, we're centralized we can't testing clinics oh where are we going to find them the hospitals the only one could do them Germany didn't have that they were like, no, oh, we always use private clinics. We use a bit of this, we use a bit of that. They're very good decentralized care. So that worked very well for them. So they test, tested and traced. I mean, my hope is that we will look at things like what happened with Sweden, what's happened with Finland. They've done really well. Okay, what was the best? It's like, it's like everything, isn't it? <laughs> what was the best practice? What worked really well? Let's cherry pick that and bring it back. And the problem is, of course, it's cost a fortune. So... Uh, my worry is it'll be come down to we'd love to do that we haven't got any money left because we spent it all on doing this which I don't really think is true we borrowed so much we might as well just borrow the rest yeah well exactly it's investing in the people but you're right I mean that's, that I think I've had you know Norwegian prison guards and uh, Zhao Gulao who headed the Portuguese decriminalization of drugs I've had um, Passy Salberg who's a Finnish educator and, and you know yeah, national yeah, speaker um, you know yeah. and, and they, these are all systems that work you know, you don't have to do any studies or anything. Of course, it's not complete apples for apples, you know, but there it's a Granny Smith versus a Golden Delicious. I mean, they're pretty damn similar. We're all humans. But it takes humility to say, 
Finland, you're doing it better than us. Can you teach us, you know, what the differences are? But if you've just got a giant ego, millions of people die because you're too proud to say someone else is actually doing it better and we're going to learn from them. And that, and that's hard. And I think when I look at, it's interesting, you come back to the shame side of it and the, the fragile ego. And I look around some of the world's leaders now and I just, you, you don't diagnose from a distance. It's completely unethical for a start. But you do look at some leaders and thinking, wow, you are a scared child. Wow, inside of that, you take slight to everything. That's, and I, I look and think, wow, oh, you really, that shame gets you. You can't stand it, can you? You can't stand not being thought was brilliant, despite the fact you're obviously failing miserably. You still think I'm going to bluff on and, and do this. So, yeah, it still comes back to that. Yeah, humility versus ego. And the best ones, look at the New Zealand, or what's her name? Uh, New Zealand's prime minister. She's amazing. You know, she just gets it, just gets it. And because she gets it, and like, this is interesting, I was reading the other day, to bounce off to another leader, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, if you get a chance, go and have a listen to the speech. I'll, I'll, I'll probably try and send you a link to it. She gave a speech, I think it's about three, four weeks ago. And it's, it was, I listened to it, it's brilliant. It was just calming. She was very matter of fact, talked about things. They study the mental health of the population pre and post her speech. Not deliberately, it just happened. That's what it Anxiety and depression went down after her speech. Just her speech. Amazing. Well, it's like Churchill. I mean, all Churchill did really was was speak to the people, but the the unity and the courage he was able to draw out the British people during that time was amazing. It's because they believed in him. And I think that that's what we're seeing a lack of now in many of the countries around the world is, you know, we're not seeing leaders anymore, not people that have walked the walk. No, no, not at all. I think, I think this is, you, you know, the, and we live in for, for all the, the, problems of living in an information world and a big data world you can't hide things you know if you come out and say something it's lots of people will be on it very quickly to say is that true does that work and then when you do something dumb like like say oh we did so many tests uh, last week and someone goes really that sounds like a massive jump how do you manage that and they find out that actually you're counting tests that you posted to somebody as having done a test then trust goes away because all of a sudden the next vulnerable group, and in the UK at the moment it's teachers and open schools, they listen to their government who goes, you should go to school. It's perfectly safe. And you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. you said this about care homes and look what's happened there. You kind of fuddle things around testing by saying we've tested these people, which we understood meant you've done a physical test, but it turns out it's just a post. You sent an envelope out. And they don't trust. And when you don't trust someone, you feel vulnerable. There's some really, really nice psychological stuff about trust in the world at the moment and the pillars of trust disappearing, which is given to a rise of uh, extremism. But you take away people's trust in leadership. And your military guys, I'm guessing, would have talked about this. You take away trust in leadership, people function way less effectively because part of their brain is going, I don't want to just believe in you and do this. Part of me has got to hold back 25% and think, you know, I don't trust you. You make mistakes and then you lie about it. I'm not going to commit to this and that's not good. So, yeah, I think trust is hit the uh, nail on the head with that word. 
Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Well, you mentioned extremism. That's a good segue to, to kind of where I want to get to next. So you found yourself deployed at some pretty significant terror attacks, you know, in the the last five years. So was it um, clarity, stress and trauma that took you there? Uh, with uh, it's a, a bunch really. Uh, clar- with clarity, uh, stress and trauma, we've dealt with. I think the the sort of Tunisia, really big one. We worked on that. Vegas shooting, we worked on that. I mean, our background is that quite a lot of uh, our clients are either corporate or in uh, tourism. So you know, with lots of tourists in these places. Uh, so you know, Sri Lanka. The bombings there, we dealt with that. That was a corporate client that needed some help and support across there. Uh, and it's also our background of that we are willing. And this, and uh, how it works with us is there's the two principals, so myself and Martin Alderson, and we work together for, we work together now, but I've worked for a company where he was a director of, and then when we both left independently, not talking to each other, I'm talking about, oh, we've got kind of thought about how we like to work. So we run that, and then we have associates, and we only have a small group of eight to ten who work for us that we have to work with. We have to see what they do. They have to buy into what we do. We don't do the sitting room, wait for people to come to you. We have feet on the ground, walking around, going and seeing people. Very proactive. And people realise, I think, when big critical incidents happen, that's what you want. You want people who are quite self-sufficient who can be out there and do that. And of course, terrorist incidents came in. Uh, and our groups got caught up in them. Nice got caught up in that. Brussels uh, worked for the uh, Foreign Commonwealth there. Uh, that was a big thing. And then someone else with NATO needed some help. So, so word gets around that you're willing to do this or you you see a value in your model of going and doing it. And the people report back on that. So, yeah, quite... Most terror incidents of the last five, ten years, one way or another, we've been involved in. And and going back before that, the Utoya Island uh, with Brevik and the shooting of all the children, the murdering of all the children, I should call it, rather than shooting, because that's what it was. So I've worked on that as well, helping set up a, uh, a leadership, crisis leadership uh, program of training. So go to so actually, I have the pleasure of going to Utoya Island and working and meeting some of the children who survived, meeting some of the police, met the, the two police. I met one of the first ones who was there, and they learned a lot of hard lessons of things not going as well as they should have. Uh, so, yeah, I've kind of got a bit of a niche in that. And then from that, I work with conflict journalists, training them and looking after them. Uh, and they asked me, knowing that I'd go to sites where there'd be a terrorist attack would actually go to places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan. Uh, so I said, being good at what I do in that way, I said, okay, I need to speak to your security officer because I do a lot of hostile environment courses where you have lots of special forces bonds on it and they know what they're doing and I know about the mental health side. So if I can speak to them and we can come to some sort of risk assessment, yeah. So I've been to Afghanistan a few times and Iraq and Pakistan Gaza last year for a week, going around doing training with the Germans there. So yes, I've been, I've been to a few of these odd places to go to, I guess, when everyone's trying to leave, I'm going. Yeah, well, you mentioned the, the Norway shooting. Um, the uh, Tom, Tom Everhart, the governor that I had from Bastoy, yeah, he was talking about that, that the, the man behind that you know, mass murder was not in one of their 
progressive open you know prisons he was a complete sociopath as we said earlier and is locked away in a box you know where he should be so you know and that, he's trying to get out yeah he's trying to get out he's appealing all the time that it's not fair it's against his human rights is this He's you know, just misunderstood. Unfortunately against him, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately against him, you know, <laughs> the guy is a danger to other people, obviously. Uh, and that was, I mean, that was fairly horrifically planned. He wanted the whole spectacle. That's why he didn't, he didn't get killed. He gave up straight away. He, he had a whole book he wanted to read out in court. He thought he was going to get to get to, to read his proclamation, his manifesto. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they stopped it. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting case study in crisis management. But working on the island was fascinating. And so one of the things we did before, I was talking to participants, and there's a field, a big field in front where the children ran to the woods. And we were talking about how powerful it was, and that's why I like working in these environments, because it's real. And I was saying to people, I said, I'll tell you what, we don't have to do this, but have a think about this. And I think thinking about it would be enough. I said, I want any of you to run across that field now and I want you to not, to see if you can not feel the energy of those children running across that field, how they must have felt. And I've got to say, none of us did it. <laughs> just the thought of having to, ru- just running across the field. And we all just went, no. And so as I say, you know, this is how powerful this is. This is why we need to do this. This is why it's important that we you know, take these opportunities to learn from the horrors of what's happened and try and make it a bit better. Yeah, they were a fascinating group. And I was awful. They actually made a very, I think it was Netflix, made a very, um, or it was on Netflix, should I say, made a very, very powerful, um, you know, movie, docu-drama, mm. whatever they call it, on that. And uh, yeah, they did a very good job and really kind of highlighted just the, the brutality of, of, you know, the lack of sense of the entire thing. And, um, you know, the, they even covered some of the trauma, like the ripple effects after as well. And it's, and it's, and we, because we do it in a hostile environment course. So we talk about, you know, what should you do? This is be- best practice, but you must be aware. So I think there's eight of the children hid in the toilets in one of the buildings. <laughs> Most people don't do that. You've now locked yourself in a room. And, and well, you haven't locked yourself in, you just closed the door. He's getting in the room. So you've basically caught yourself. He didn't go in and afterwards said, he thought, yeah, if I go in there after them, I'll get cornered there myself if the police come. So actually, I'll, I'll let them live. I'll go and hunt outside, which was, in some ways, shows you his mind, uh, how cold and calculated it was, but also shows you when you hear about, you know, the best practice. Actually, when you're in the middle of things, you kind of have to somehow go back to instinct and what's happening. And is that right? Should I do this? You know, how, how can we manage the situation? It's all a, all a big learning curve. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, Paris as well, November thirteenth, two thousand fifteen. Um, the Bataclan shooting that was that was horrendous. And again, men that hunted down Parisians, you know, all over the city. Uh, you know, what was your experience like that? In contrast, for example, somewhere like um, you know, Southeast Asia, where you had those those tribal leaders, those groups, you were able to kind of put that plan together. What was different about Paris? The well, this is. And, and this is a, one of the interesting things, I guess, from a psychological point of view, is, and you, you summed it up there, and this is with terror attacks. And I, I was recently worked on the London Bridge attack with the, the Nar whale tusk and the very brave individuals who 
tackle them. Uh, if something happens like uh, a, a an accident, a road accident, this accidents happen. This is what this is what's happened. It's an accident. Even when it comes to a fire or and fire, I've got to say fire and water. Whenever I hear they've been involved, it makes me shudder because I know they're going to be traumatic. But it's it falls into that accident. You know, something's happened. It's part of a, a natural thing that we don't like, but these things do happen. Terror attacks psychologically different because now someone is intelligently, and I use that word advisedly, in sort of a fox way, I guess, is after you. This is personal. It's not, oh, it could happen to anyone. People who go through this, and we met this in London, in Brussels, in Paris, in Nice, the deliberate act of another human being hunting you down. This isn't, you know, I was, there was an earthquake and I, I've just left the island. Someone has the earthquake, someone's come there for the deliberate act of, and you know it's not you personally, but that's not how we work emotionally and mentally under stress. It is you personally. So we think it's always they're after someone else, then we don't move and we get shot. So it's always you. So it's, that is the main difference. In Southeast Asia, it was awful and it was tragic and it was, but they, they have had, you know, their, their oral history talks of tsunamis. So it's part of the horrible things that happen in life and earthquakes and volcanoes and traffic accidents and illness. An individual or individuals coming and hunting you down is very personal. And, and that really stays with you because you don't feel safe. You know, I don't go to Indonesia. I'm not like to be in a volcano. You know, going to Paris, that's not a worry for me. But someone's coming to get me, as we know from Bali. They came to Bali, they came to Paris. So it's a real personal thing, and you've got to address that. And as you say, with the anniversary of the Manchester bombings, and I dealt with a lot of work there. I mean, on that side, I, I was actually with the police rather than uh, the survivors. Uh, so I was working with the police, but it's personal. And that that's it. Someone's hunting you is a good way to look at it. Yeah. And that's the main difference with terror attacks. Right. Well, you mentioned the police. So that's the one last area I want to get to before we go to some closing questions, if, if you do have time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the first responder. So, you know, you're talking about these, you know, these individual um, events that happen, whether it's a, a tsunami, a shooting, a bombing, you know, a drowning, whatever it is, some of these smaller yet still tragic events that, that your company responds to. Hopefully in these people's lives, this might be the only, you know, uh, acute trauma that they have you know, as far as this kind of loss of life. First responder communities, it's 10, 20, 30 years of continuous trauma. So what is your kind of philosophy training towards first responder groups from, from that lens? Uh, the, the way I look at it and the way, the way I, I believe in, and there's lots of different models of how to do it, but I think what needs to be done first and foremost is proactive care. I think that really is the bit that needs to be done. And I know things have changed because I have lots of friends, first responders and things. And they say, yes, it has changed. We're now more looked after. We're more thought about. But they will still talk about post-event. Something happens. Are you guys okay? Do you want to phone somebody? Here's a number. And I'm with with uh, clarity in myself and mine. That's one of the things we're a known one. We all say to people, don't just say, here's a number. Say, is it okay they phone you? 
let them be proactive. Because if you just come from something you don't want to talk about, you might forget about it very quickly because we know how traumatic effects work. But before all that happens, it, it almost should be ingrained in any frontline staff attorney, from firefighters, as we're seeing now, to the NHS staff. This is part and parcel of what we do. We look after your mental and emotional well-being, and we do that by doing this. And it should be a regular thing, not, you know, you get taken on, you get shown how things work. And, oh, by the way, here's your uh, employee assistance program. We have a counselling service if you ever need anything like that. And if you need anything about finding out about healthcare, you can go here. Oh, and by the way, there's something there about legal. You know, it just gets thrown in, book, off you go. The amount of companies I've worked for, I've turned and hi, my name is, and we do it slightly differently because we, we, we kind of don't demand or really push the fact that, hi, my name is Mark Bradley, I'm from so-and-so, uh, hands up how many people have heard of me. And the, I know I work with companies who really push this, invest lots of money, and if half the room put their hand up, I consider it, wow, that's good, lots of you have heard of us. Because <laughs> lots of them haven't, you know, and these, these are, say, working with people who work in conflict zones. So they should have been here. So with first responders, I think it should be part and parcel of their training is, let's do this. I would, I would push for things like group work. Or sit there. When I worked in traumatic, in the, the children's home I worked in, which we took children who were going off into secure units, so they were out there as people would look at, tier four level. We had group therapy twice a week and individual therapy once a week just to deal with the emotional stress of having to deal with these people. It was considered essential. I think that we should really start looking at a program where that's much more accessible. It doesn't have to be therapy, but it has to be a group that talks about how we do it, how was this week, what was happening. Just remind you, there's the number. Train a psychological first aid responder in every single department. So they're always there. So if something happens, someone is there. There's always someone there that was, is, is, and I don't use the word that much, champion it. That someone whose job is, and it's a role given by and supported by the hierarchy. So senior staff say, this is important. You have time to do this. And I think it needs to be embedded because you just can't take it all on board. You know, I talk to some people and you just, you know, two or three of the things they've been through <laughs> are overwhelming. And humans, we're resilient. We're really good at dealing with some things. But you get too many happening too often, it overwhelms. And that's the thing, isn't it? Stress. It's nice when I talk about stress and training, I say, look, I don't want to stop you being stressed because you kind of need it. It's really good for you in the right amount at the right time. So stress, you can't stop stress. Burnout. That's different. You can stop burnout. There's no reason anyone should burn out. People, PTSD, people will get that. I think you can put lots in place to try and lessen it, but people will get it. Hopefully with enough good mechanisms in place, their recovery is much better. But I think it's a very difficult one to stop as well because it's partly up to the individual circumstance context. Things like burnout, no, shouldn't be happening. So I think, yeah, my first thing is much more proactive, much more emphasis. And the hostile environment course, I know we shout about it, but it's, like, it's kind of like blowing your own trumpet as a psychologist. We do 90% of stuff on 
kidnappings, carjackings, math reading. Yeah, you talk to all the people who are on the courses and they do all that, it's necessary. But we say, you know, have you ever been in an accident? Have you ever had a gun, you know, pointed and robbed? Most of them know. Ever felt really stressed? Ever felt like burning out? Ever felt you know, powerful reaction, stopping sleeping? All of them, yes, full stop. <laughs> yeah, we give it, even knowing that, we give it 10% of the time. It is changing, but that's where I'd go, yeah. Brilliant. Really, very proactive. Yeah, I love that. So, so when in in America, I never actually applied for the fire service in England because I was told I was colorblind, which again was wrong. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but here, you know, I've been through four departments now, four, you know, um, medical entry uh, tests, whatever you want to put them. And so they'll more often than not be a polygraph, which you know obviously costs you know whatever it is, a hundred bucks or whatever um there'll be psychological tests which you know, i joke about this a lot on this you know it'll be the, literally thousands of questions that you fill in you know do you like the color green do you like badgers do you like um you know fluffy bunnies do you like molesting kids do you like butterflies and you're like wait wait what you know so but each of these you know and then there's a su- supposedly uh a psychology um it's, it's an evaluation. So it's not a counselor. It's not anything to do with you. It's to basically see, I'm going to check the box to make sure this person isn't a serial killer. And to me, your background is what shows, you know, especially if you're, you know, mid twenties, whatever, by that point, you, if you've screwed up as an individual, it's going to be there on a paper trail somewhere. So uh, my proposal to some of the, the people in the psychology world for first responder communities is to take that money that you're already spending as a department. And instead of doing these ridiculous smoke and mirror tests that are proving nothing, like I lied my way through three polygraphs because I had tried drugs back, you know, 20, 10 years prior to me applying the very first time, had a great time, danced my ass off, never lost a job, and that was it. But I was honest and got disqualified the first time, so I realized I had to lie. Um, but it's it's such a facade. But take that money and so many of these men and women that are coming into these protector professions, as we mentioned earlier, do have some sort of trauma in their life leading up to this. And it's part of what drove them. So giving them two or three sessions with a counselor that's viewed exactly the same as their physical test, as their, you know, physical ability test. This is just part of the process. And giving them A, a relationship with a counselor and B, a chance to offload some of the trauma at the door seems to me such a, you know, a better, more proactive model than just checking boxes. So if they end up, you know, not being who you thought they were, you can just turn around and go, well, we, we checked them, so it's not on us. And I, I think you've, and so many of these, I mean, from my background, and I, I you know, even though I do the hands-on stuff, I secretly, I love a bit of research, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, a year away from the doctorate bit of using positive psychology and self-compassion to help with people. So I do love all that. But what I know from that is, I could give you a test. You could score on it. A month later, because life changes, you could be in the best mood in the world. Everything's gone right for you that six months. Then it falls apart. You know, the score that we gave you a month ago or six months ago is not valid, but they're still using it. And so lots of people say, look, yeah, they're fine, but put them in their place. This is just a nice snapshot. So you found out, yeah, this person's clinically okay today <laughs> well that's not a guarantee you're going to be clinically okay in six months time it's certainly not going to be a guarantee that if you've got someone who's and you've been through you know let's say you're onto three four departments who's had some horrific experiences in those departments and comes through and no one ever mentions it but they're fine because they're resilient and they're doing well and they know their job 
the next one is a straw that breaks the camel's back. And then you've got someone who's like, oh, and nowhere to go. Where if you just said, look, and part of what I want to do is, and this is not an evaluation. This is to talk about the emotional strain because we know this happens <clears throat> on your life and your job. We know it affects you. And we just want you to say, you know, anything you're worried about, what would be concerned about, what do you find difficult? You know, what's happened? How do you deal with that? That's fine. Great. Go ahead. Now we know that. You know me. I know you. We both know what's happened. You start feeling a bit worried. You don't sit there in a room full of other frontline staff, first responders, all who seem to be doing great because no one's saying anything and thinking, wow, I'm the only one. I'm broke. They're, look, they're all laughing and joking. I'm broken. Wow. I can't let them know I'm broken. That's what happens. I can't let them know I'm broken because no one else is talking about it because no one's ever educated them or made it okay to say, yeah, that was grim. I mean, I've got things that I don't talk about with family and friends. Uh, I talk about with sort of other professionals, my colleagues. Uh, I'll bring up, this is in my head, but I don't want to give it to your head because it's, it's grim. But uh, it's bouncing around. I need to let go of it. And they ask permission. They say, yeah. And I do the same thing for them when something goes wrong. But we know that's good for us. And yet you get lots of people from police, from firefighters, hospitals, you know, working ICUs, who that to them is can't do it. Got to keep pushing ahead. Can't show it. I'll be overwhelmed. I'll be broken. I won't be able to do my role. And it's just ridiculous. You know, if you're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're not broken. You know, you're just human. So, yeah, I think that what you said then is great. Let's just put some more human to human and not ticking a box into it. That's what you kind of do anyway, isn't it? You deal with human beings. You don't go and put fire up because... Ooh, there's a lot, of, a lot of tick boxes in there that need saving. <laughs> you stand back and say, we'll let that burn and keep everyone safe, shall we? What you do is you deal with human beings. So why don't we have that primarily proactively put in the process? Absolutely. Well, thank you for your perspective, because I, I, I think that's you know what needs to be said. Like you, like you illustrated so perfectly. I've heard over and over and over again, I've had you know many men and women who literally you know, proverbially or actually had a gun in their mouth at some point then god never pulled the trigger but that was it that facade that everyone else is doing okay and you know when we say break the stigma you know it's like it's not about doing push-ups it's about being vulnerable as a leader and saying there's days i'm not okay and here's why and here's what i do to cope here's here's what i did to cope that almost destroyed me and then here's what i found to cope that actually healed me do you know, I work with a, a guy who was uh, ex-SF and, and two decades ago, highest level he could get to, amazing. And he admits, you know, he, he carries things with him and he does the work. And I work with him on hostile environment courses. It's very good work. Work a bunch of SF on hostile environment courses all around the world. Uh, but him talking about what has happened and how it's deeply and emotionally and psychologically affected him. And not necessarily giving lots of details, but, you know, about things that he's had to see or do or has happened to him where he's been taken is so powerful because you're looking at what you would perceive to be just by, you know, the whole law that's behind this is very powerful, very capable individuals who've been put through everything to find out if they are, and they are, goes, you know what, I'm just going to let you know what happened. And it is hard, 
hard. You cannot protect yourself emotionally and psychologically from this. It will happen to you. You know what helps? Me being able to say this to you. Me being able to acknowledge that that was hard. That actually, I'm not broken. That's hard for everyone. And that's, you know, I've I watched across the world on these courses when these guys talk about this and it's way more powerful than me saying it. <laughs> you know, I can say it. And it's like, oh no, nothing never happened to me. But hey, they talk about it and it's like, wow. Wow, you're just making it okay because you say it hurt. It hurts all of us. So yeah, that, that's very important. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, so what does your self-care look like? I mean, you know, a lot of the people in the psychology world that I talk to, you know, it, the analogy I use is the Green Mile. You know, Michael Clark Duncan's character. We're taking on, whether it's a responder or a psychologist, we're taking on other people's trauma, other people's pain in a way. How do you offload it and take care of yourself? That's a really good question. And I get asked that all the time. And I'm kind of like, oh, okay. Uh, right. Uh, well, two things happen with me, I guess, I've learned, is that I'm much, because I'm not, I can't avoid stress and anxiety and low mood and depression and, you know, the post-traumatic, traumatic, post-stress traumatic reactions, you know, happened to me in Indonesia. I can't, I can't avoid them, you know, not shield around you. Uh, but I'm very aware of when I'm agitated, when I'm irritable. If I can't sleep or I'm irritable, something's playing on my mind and I know it and I know I'm, I know I know it and I know I know what it is. I just have to face up to it. So I tend to now act a lot quicker to do that. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, exercise, just sport. I mean, mindfulness and I mean, I do deep breathing and visualization. I, you know, that's definitely one thing I just have there all the time. And I would advise anyone to do anything. Just learn to deep breathe, to do deep relaxation and visualization. It's that's that will help you with sleep, mood, everything. So I do that anyway, but exercise. People do the mindfulness where they don't think about the past or the future. They just think about what's happening now because, of course, the past doesn't exist and the future's another country. It's not real. Put yourself in the now. And I find, and that's what I find, CrossFit does for me. I, I tend to do high, high energy sort of stuff. I can't think about anything else. And I, even in my being exhausted, and I'm running and I do cycling quite a lot still, and I'm burning myself out it's just me the exercise nothing else any worries any anxieties have gone i'm just doing it and i and i suppose because i consciously know that i'm doing that it works better because i know that that's giving me a break so i know when i come back to any sort of worries or concerns they're still there they're not going away and i accept that but i know just by you know put heavy weight over your head you gotta pay attention having your kind of stuff or you jump up and down and sprint it off you know you just gotta focus so that's definitely a way i, I do that uh, the other two things i really stick to uh, is i do the gratitude thing i'm quite big into the positive psychology side of stuff in a gentle way uh i genuinely will look outside and if it's raining i will think ah good the ground probably needs some rain. It makes the hills how they are. And I love that. Thank you for being rainy. If it's sunny, I'm like, great, nice sunny weather. I can get out on my bike. <laughs> there is nothing I can't be grateful for almost. And even when things go wrong, I can look back and I'm thinking, that wasn't pleasant. But you know what? I won't be doing that again. And I'm glad I learned that. So, yeah, that's the, 
just that day-to-day monitoring, nothing big, nothing clever. And if something really is in my head, so when I work with children, that's one thing that, you know, I go then children died. It's one thing that really echoes with me. Uh, then I'll, I'll go and speak uh, to a professional. I have to go into lots of therapeutic long-term sessions. It's, it's more, this is just there. This is what I went through. This, I know it's normal to feel like that, but I just need to talk to someone about, you know, wow, that was fairly, fairly grim, fairly hard. And they just listen. You know, sometimes they may go, Matthew, Mark, you know, take a break for a few days because this may play around in your head. But most of the time they're going, they just understand and I tend to talk to people who do the same sort of stuff I do as well because you know, they, they do understand. So that's kind of it, daily, daily stuff. And then if I really need it, be aware that you've just got to do it. Go away. As my ex-Marine mate used to say all the time, sometimes, Mark, you've just got to bite the bullet and do it. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting because when you're telling about the – the exercise component. I actually had a bit of a shitty day yesterday. I don't know why. I mean, you know, mine come and go every so often, you know, quite infrequently now, but they'll just come and it won't even be a thing. There's not, a, there's nothing I could write down and say, this is what's causing it. It just, it's a, an emotion. And knowing that exercise works so well, um, you know, that's what I want to do. But when you are anxious or depressed, sometimes you don't want to exercise. And it kind of reminds me of what you said with, you know, the tsunami is don't be paralyzed by decisions just just do it just go for a walk a cycle a swim you know a crossfit workout because an hour later you are going to feel better so just don't even think about it throw on your throw on your shoes and just get out there and do it and this is it sounds i kind of joke when i'm doing talks on stress and trauma resilience with people and i kind of say you know after umpteen universities degrees courses and professional training I can't believe I'm going to tell you to go for a walk. <laughs> but the psychology behind it is, remember your brain is functioning to keep you safe. Emotionally, you can fall apart. Physically, it's really concerned. Back in the, in the UK before penicillin came in, last septicemia case, I think, was a guy who died from cutting himself on a rose bush. No penicillin, died. The brain, the bit of your brain that looks after you, the old bit, remembers that, remembers physical that. So if you're really worried about something and you sit at home and you're like, your brain won't let you forget, oh, Mark sat down on the sofa, he's very comfortable. Yeah, let's just think about this. You get up, go for a walk, all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's a car. Oh, look, there's a curb, you might fall over. Oh, I could walk into a lamppost. There's other people, it distracts you. It's not perfect. It's not like, you know, an opiate but it distracts you. Your brain cannot worry about that thing that's making you anxious and look after you 100% on either side. It has to divert. Just take, go for a walk for 20 minutes, come back, you will feel clearer, that distraction. The problem may still be there, and it may take some sorting out, and you may have to go for other walks, but distract yourself. Physical movement distracts the part of the brain that's looking after you, that makes you worry about things and makes you stress, because it has to physically look after you. So yeah, you're right, put your shoes on and go for a walk. No, but we're speaking of CrossFit, we have we have Murph on Monday, Memorial Day here, so I always do it in my fire gear, which is so that's an hour of not thinking anything other than I am so hot, I want to stop, I want to take my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know, Murph, I mean, just, it's just, there's a sadistic pleasure in that workout. 
that you, you just look at it. I, I have to say, yeah, it's just one of those things. Thinking, I have this thing when I do workouts and stuff now, it's just mentally, because you know you get to that point where you're like, oh, I just want to stop. I, want to go. I actually thought, no. <laughs> and I say to myself, okay, then Mark, stop. No one's forcing you. It's not a job. You don't have to do it. Put the kettlebell down. Stop doing that. Don't jump on that box. And as soon as I say it, I go, you know you're not going to do that, do you, Mark? You know you're not going to stop. So actually, if you stop whining about it and focus on doing it, it'll be much better. <laughs> I carry that over to lots of things in my life. Love that. Yeah. Give yourself permission to stop. You're not going to do it. Just carry on. <laughs> Good luck with Murph, though. <laughs> yeah, well, especially with what we do, you know, because I'll have that self-talk sometimes. Like, All right, stop. But that means that you fell short of the, the story of the building you needed to get to to rescue that kid. But no, if you want to tap out, it's fine. You know, so when, when you put it into lives are at stake, which they are for most people listening, you have to push, th- push through because that might literally be a life or death moment. And, and I get this with quite a few, strangely enough, with people coming on courses uh, and the hospital courses. And part of my job is to train this, but part of my job is because it's quite high level I deal with. So there are, you know, sort of hooding and kidnaps and stuff like that going on. And so I've got to make sure they're okay for duty of care. But then, you know, I talk, say, look, I'm, I'm around. Let's have a chat about things. And I have said to a number of people, look, what you're describing to me is that you are, you're, you're, you're close to burnout. You can't do it. You've described this perfectly. Actually, you will let the very people down that you profess that you would never let down just by continuing. You know, why on earth should they not get 100% from you? That's disingenuous of you. Now, I know you can be worn out and you just push yourself and you go a bit further. If you know that you cannot do this any longer and you still turn up out of some sense that, you know, I'm not the person who gives up, you're letting them down. You know, so actually, yeah, have that self-talk and, and just be aware that sometimes sometimes it's just hard and you don't want to do it and you have to push yourself. But sometimes that little voice is saying, oh, you know, man, you actually do need a break. You need just to go and speak to someone and say, look, my concentration's gone, but I'm not doing this well enough. And that is generally not what they deserve. So, yeah, that little self-talk is quite enlightening at times, if you're honest. Jeff Nichols, one of the Navy SEALs I had on, made me realize is take a policeman, you know, doctor, nurse, firefighter that's coming off shift. The movement might be good, but again, the intensity of that movement, you have to really regulate. You may not want to do Murph after fighting fire all night. Yeah. Yeah. Physically. Yeah. But mentally, emotionally, concentration, you might be not there. And we, and especially, you know, and we have I know a guy who did the training, and did the whole thing and then uh, collapsed afterwards. Fine, sat around the campfire, bam, straight over. You know, everything looked good. Wouldn't listen to the voice. No one noticed, no one knew. And he, he knew. And in fact, his friend, his best friend with him now said, I tapped. I said, I can't do this. And went out and they just carried on. And he said, we were, and, and I thought, that's odd because we're the same. You know, I'm as good as you. You know, but I thought maybe he's just pushing through something strange. It's a hard one. No, no one likes to have to do it, but back to humility. <laughs> yeah. Well, rest and recovery too. I mean, that's just it. You know, choose the days that you're going to do Murph. You know, but like you said, if you've got if you've got that burnout going on, then you are going to be useless mentally and physically as a responder if if there's no homeostasis anymore. If you're running on fumes. No, no, you're gonna and you're gonna let down the people you don't want to let down, and that will only lead to 
you, colleagues, people there to help, someone at some time not getting the best. And they, you know, I kind of say, look, you know, you're a good person. They deserve the best of yourself. You know, work to, to give them that. And that means looking after yourself. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've been talking for two hours. So I'm going to go to some closing questions wow. so we can let you go. <laughs> um, the first one I always love to ask, is there a book that you recommend to people? It can be about something we've discussed today or something completely different. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, that's, the, the, I suppose uh, yeah, these were the book that I give to other people. So I bought it and then read it and given it away again and again is the Philip K. Dick. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, Blade Runner. Uh, and the reason I like it so much is because it, it talks to what it is to be human. You know, and that's the idea of how is it becoming a human? At what point do you conscious? Saying, do they dream of the same things we do? Which comes back to the beginning of our talk, which is actually we're all kind of the same. So yeah, that's, it's, a, it's nice and short as well. You fly through that. Brilliant. I've never had that uh, recommended before, so I'm going to have to look that up. Thank you. All right, same question, but a movie, a film. Oh, God, this is really hard, isn't it? Because there's, there's so many really good ones. There's some films that are brilliant. It can, be, it can be more than one. Uh, to, to watch one of the, the uh, I loved, I could, I'd never watch it again, a film called The Road, uh, about post-apocalyptic, well, but very dark, very grey. Uh, but beautifully done. Is that v uh, Vigo Morrison? Yeah, that's the one. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah dark, but good. Wouldn't watch it again. Uh, film called Poulette, a French film about a little girl, bit, bit dark, <laughs> loses her mother in a car crash. But it's all done from the five-year-olds and the children's point of view of what losses and stuff like that. It's just a really nice, beautiful thing to watch. And then I'm just going just, to just admit it because I watched it more times than any other film I've ever watched is Last of the Mohicans, the Daniel Day-Lewis one, which I've probably watched well, well I'm easy into 20 plus times. I love everything. Did you ever get to Chimney Rock in North Carolina where they filmed that? No. Yeah, there's, uh, it's uh, right outside Cherokee, but you can actually like okay. hike up to that rock and you'll see the exact, you know, where they had the big fight at the end. And it's pretty cool if you're a fan of that movie. Oh, next time I'm there because I've got relatives in the States, I'm, I'm definitely doing that. But the soundtrack, everything, but that whole subplot of his son and the relationship that goes on. And then and I love that sort of film <laughs> that as soon as, I can't remember his name, is does that, you're just looking and thinking, oh, that was a mistake. That's <laughs> coming. You're going to be in a world of trouble. And I kind of like that whole you know, you get into the narrative and come, yeah, so that, I, I, yeah, I, could, I could go back and watch that now. I'm never tired of watching it. Brilliant. All right, what about a documentary? Have you seen any, any that really, you know, struck you recently? Uh, Do you know, I, I watched, and I wasn't going to watch it, uh, I've, oh, no, I've watched a bunch of sports ones. Uh, but I'm going to go for one that, that kind of caught me out. I was like, Really? And it was, I think it was Super Size Me 2, where he goes and sets up a chicken restaurant. And it's from the guy, you know, who decided to live on McDonald's for 30 days. And it's, just, and it's one where he sets up a chicken restaurant. And I, I thought, oh, I'll see what it is. And it's just, just done so. And of course, it's like self and sort of health and looking after yourself and food and what we eat. But it wasn't just, oh, chicken's unhealthy and all this. He didn't really 
push that in the way it's done and we should do this or chicken and that. It's just also just, you know, how badger the poor farmers are who make this and how under the cost they are. Oh, we're not having this, we're not doing that, and a lot of pressure put on them. But actually done in a kind of right, nice, humorous way. So it wasn't preachy. It was just like, yeah, just be informed. This is what it's like. What do you think? So, yeah, I, I kind of like that. I watched sports films and sports documentaries as well, though it's like, oh, some guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, Morgan Spurlock, the guy who did that movie, would, would be a good guest, I think. He's quite an, an unusual perspective with the two movies he made. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of... It's, yeah, he it's, it's kind of gets himself right in there, but it's also... They're a lot brighter than you think. You think anyone could do it, but actually, he touches on quite a really nice style of, uh, of, of talking to people and getting things out of them. It comes across quite sympathetic. It's not overly judgmental. It's just, really? We can do better than this, surely. Yeah, which is, you know, I think it's common sense as well. You know, it's funny when people start trying to take it apart. Well, there's a man that survived on McDonald's and he was just fine. Like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> we don't, we don't need it. We don't need to hear that story. We'll just look at, you know, all the millions of people that are dying from obesity and we'll take that longitudinal study. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone knows someone who lived in 90 smoking. Yeah. It's like, well, I've, I've never been hit by a car. But you know what I do when I cross the road? I look out for cars. <laughs> well, speaking of guests, there's something I like to ask as well. Is there a person that you would uh, recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? You know, there, um, strangely, yes. And I think you'll fit right here. A uh, guy called Paul Keedwell, Dr. Keedwell. I'll link you into him. I was on a podcast he does which is basically a very English thing. Uh, two men sitting down having a talk about mental health over a beer. And that's how these two friends decided to do it. But he specializes in mood disorders. He knows about podcasts and noise. He's really good. He's written a great book called How Sadness Survived, which kind of talks to people and says, look, it's okay to be sad. You know, there's nothing particularly wrong with being sad or even depressed to a certain extent. It's telling you something. What we need to do is learn how to do that. So he's done lots of, he's done, he's very good at the research side, very good at the hands-on side. Uh, but he's also, he's a very personable character. You know, he, he can he can joke and laugh and then pull bits of interesting research. He's very much now into looking at how, uh, thinking about how sort of psychedelics, MDMA, even ketamine works with uh, drug-resistant depression. Brilliant. So, you know, he's... So he knows all about his very cutting edge on stuff. Uh, I'm, he, he knows I'm doing this because I did his one. Uh, but I, I was thinking we're doing, thinking, oh, the press Paul would be great, you know, because he deals high end NHS level stuff. So yeah, he'd be really good. I'll mention it to you. I'll probably speak into it quite soon. Please, yeah, yeah. I had um, Dr. Ben Sessa, who's based out of Bristol, um, and he is finding incredible results using MDMA with psychotherapy. And, you know, it's not that it's prescribed. You know, they come and they, I think it's three treatments and they've shown incredible results and it continues to improve, you know, way past the treatment. But again, as back to our illicit drug conversation, they have to wait and wait and wait because that is an illegal drug. So they can't treat these veterans and all these other people that are having amazing results because of our ridiculous drug laws. Yeah, well, Paul, you, Paul that conversation and and the good thing about paul is uh he's super switched on bright so he's he's good at debating all this because he has to every time he goes to panel or talks to other doctors 
so he, he's, he's a great person to be going, well, actually, you know, that doesn't make sense because you, know, you do that. And if you do look at it in Portugal or you look at where they studied this, it worked really well. So that's a non-founded worry, but I get it. You know, he's, you know, yeah, he's very switched on. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. So very last uh, area. Firstly, if, if people listening that, you know, want to reach out to Clarity, Stress and Trauma, how do they find you there? Uh, easiest way is just go on to LinkedIn and you'll you'll find a link there to the website or you can just get in touch with me from that or just go on the website and if you actually put in clarity stress and trauma it'll come up there but it, it'll show you lots of the stuff that we've worked on so you'll know quite quickly whether it's for, for you or not uh and then find out and you might like our model which is be very proactive <laughs> Yeah, that was phenomenal. And just seeing the list, even just last year, all the events that you, you went to, the the ferry tragedy with the Korean um, tourists. And I mean, just, I mean, almost yeah, everything. Martin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everything that we see on the news, you guys pretty much responded to. So that speaks volumes. So and for them to reach out to you specifically, LinkedIn's the best platform as well. Yeah. And you know, I'm like, we're all in lockdown. So particularly at the moment, I'm, yeah, I've got time on my hands and stuff. So I've, I've just written a bit on... Uh, for NGOs on looking after themselves, what sort of things might be particularly stressful to them. I'm doing something for people in care homes. So if anyone wants just to reach out and go, you know, in fact, this is from the States or anywhere, we're talking out very easy. Uh, with any particular questions or who would you recommend for this? If I can help, I'm, I'll send them something along. Brilliant. Well, Mark, I just want to say thank you so much. It's such a completely different perspective. You know, you're the the occupations that that you've kind of found yourself in have given you know amazing you know amazing perspectives on on child psychology on you know trauma some of these horrendous attacks so thank you for reaching out and thank you so much for being so generous we talked for over two hours do you know it's flown by and i'll say thank you james because there's things that i haven't really thought about that we've talked about the niggling in the back of my head and a couple of things come up and i thought when i've been thinking on top of what we're thinking, ah, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, there is that drive there to, to help and try and save because when I was younger, felt the need to do these sorts of things. Yeah, so thank you as well. It's been genuinely been a pleasure.